You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name's Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. And today is the final teaching in our Exiles teaching series. I hope if you've joined us for this series that you will have gained a little bit of wisdom on how to navigate our cultural moment, how to navigate the context in which we live. Because the reality is, if you are a follower of Jesus, it's not uncommon to feel like an outsider to feel like maybe you're the odd one out, or maybe even to experience more and more moments where you experience opposition or resistance, maybe even hostility in your faith. And we need to know how to navigate those kinds of situations. And one of the, the dominant frameworks for this teaching series has been, it's not an accident that you are where you are. In fact, God has sent you there, Okay. Uh, Jesus, in John 17, verse 18, says this, praying to the Father. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have, everyone say that next word, so I have sent them into the world. Who's them? It's us. It's his followers. Think of Jesus's final words before he ascended to the Father in Matthew 28. He said, go, right? He was sending his disciples into the the world. But that begs this very important question. How do you know what God is sending you to do? How do you even know where God is sending you? It's this this question of calling. And uh, if you're here today, maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus, or it's been a long time since you've been in church. I guarantee you still wrestle with that. What's my, you, you might not ask it in the same way, God, what are you sending me to do? But you might ask questions like, what's my purpose? What's my meaning? What am I here for, right? It's a, it's a question that every single human being wrestles with because that's how God built our souls, to recognize that we have meaning, we have purpose, God is sending us. And then we read some of these kinds of stories like the story of Moses in Exodus chapter three, where Moses encounters God in the burning bush. And we kind of get ourselves into trouble at times because God speaks audibly to Moses and he tells him exactly where to go and exactly what to do. God says, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you'll tell Pharaoh, let my people go, right? He says, this is the person I'm sending you to, the location, here's the timing, and he gives him the instructions. Here's the problem with that though. How many times has God spoken through a burning bush? In all of history, we only know of once. And so for many followers of Jesus, we're waiting on that miraculous moment where God gives us 100% crystal clarity. We sometimes even pray for clarity, and it's not a bad thing necessarily to pray for clarity. The only problem is God doesn't always make it exactly clear. That's why he calls you to step out in faith. And so instead of waiting for a miraculous moment to join Jesus in his mission in the world, we need to start looking for ordinary opportunities. Stop waiting for miraculous moments. Now, if God speaks to you in a powerful way or something like that, that's great. God can still operate that way. The reality is for most people, though, 
we're missing out on the ordinary opportunities. And that's why we're going to be turning to the book of Esther today. If you have a Bible, you can open to the book of Esther. And uh, the reality is for many of us, we experience God's calling, not like Moses in the burning bush. We experience God's calling much like Esther, who at the story of Esther is so ordinary that she almost missed it. She almost missed what God was sending her to do. Fun fact about the book of Esther, it's one of the two books of the Bible that never mentions the name of God. And yet, as we'll see today, it has God's fingerprints written all over it. So if you're there with me, uh, let's turn to Esther chapter one. We'll start in the first verse of chapter one. And first, we'll just start off by introducing you to the four main characters. Esther 1.1. 1, 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on Though his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of whose greatness? Of his own greatness for many days. How many days? 180 days. Okay, here's our first character if you're taking notes. King Ahasuerus, I'm gonna refer to him as Xerxes, is his Greek name, because Ahasuerus is kind of hard for me to say, just to be honest. And it's the same guy, right? Uh, King Xerxes, here's three things you need to know about him. He's rich, he's powerful, and he's foolish. Uh, he's rich, he's powerful, he's foolish. From the very opening lines of Esther, he's got so much money, so much power, that he basically, for 180 days, parades it around for all the royal officials to see. He's very proud of how wealthy he is and how powerful he is. Now, King Xerxes is the fourth king of the Persian Empire. Where we left off last week, we looked at Daniel chapter six and introduced us to Cyrus the Great, the very, you know, the very first Persian king. Now, that was in 539 BC that Cyrus the Great took the throne. And there's Cambyses in 530 BC, Darius the first in 522, and then Xerxes began his rule in 486 BC, okay? So just to, to set this in the historical context, this is the third year of Xerxes' reign. Now, Xerxes, we see his foolishness played out in chapter one, and we'll see it throughout the rest of the story. He operates, even though he's the most powerful character in the story, he operates almost like a puppet, He's manipulated by his royal advisors. He's manipulated by other people in the story. But to be fair, he is the most powerful character in the story. He's the king of the Persian Empire. And in Esther chapter 1, uh, he, he faces this problem where he throws this feast for seven days, and likely he's getting drunk at the feast. He's this huge party. And what happens is, on the seventh day, he has this idea. He wants to show off his wife, Queen Vashti, to the rest of the people, the guests in the party. Another thing you know about Xerxes, he likes to party, Okay. That's an important fact. It'll come up later. So Xerxes, he likes to party, and he asks he, you know, his wife to come down to display her beauty to everyone. Now, we don't know exactly what he's asking, uh, but it's probably something shameful, right? Uh, and so much so that Vashti doesn't want to do it. She refuses. 
And so this obviously makes Xerxes upset. And his royal advisors say, hey, you know what you should do? You should make a new decree. And you should banish Vashti. And she can never be in your presence for the rest of her life. And that is going to be a royal decree. And everyone in the empire is going to read about that decree. And you know what that's going to do? That's going to also help uh, husbands dealing with their insubordinate wives who won't come and dance for them or whatever, right? And so he's like, that's a great idea. So he does this. And then he has a problem. What's his problem? Now he doesn't have a queen anymore. He's like, oh, no, I don't have a queen. And they say, well, we have a great idea. Here's how you can get a new queen. Uh, we know you like beautiful women. Let's have a beauty contest to find the most beautiful, eligible woman in the empire. And that uh, young woman will be the next queen. And of course, that sounds good to Xerxes, OK? So that's King Xerxes. You can kind of already get, you know, can you, can you picture who he is, right? Rich, powerful, and, and, and foolish, right? Esther chapter 2, let's see our next character. Esther chapter 2, verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Okay, so Mordecai, he's the next character in the story. Mordecai, three things you need to know about him. He's wise, he's honorable, and he's righteous. He's, he's a good guy. Uh, and Mordecai's great-grandfather, Kish, who is from the tribe of Benjamin, was carried away in the exile under, this is why it's sometimes tricky to read the Old Testament, under King Jeconiah, also known as King Jehoiachin, okay? So sometimes when we read, read in uh, scripture, his name is Jehoiachin. That was the deportation, again, if you've been following on this series, in 597 BC. That was the major deportation of the Jews under King Jehoiachin. So what this means is Mordecai's family has been living in exile for over a century, for over 100 years. And you might kind of fairly ask the question, wait, we're reading Esther. Isn't the exile over? And it's like, yes and no, right? Cyrus the Great issued the decree of Cyrus. And that led to about, according to Ezra chapter 2, about 50,000 Jews returning to Jerusalem. And yet, Here's Mordecai, a Jew, living in the capital city of the Persian Empire. And he's part of what would be known as the Jewish diaspora, the Jewish dispersion, which is Jews who essentially settled outside of the Promised Land who would never return. And it's this kind of self-imposed exile that they would live forever in exile. And it's not difficult to imagine someone whose family for four generations has now lived in a foreign land for them to actually decide, I think we're just gonna stay. We're just gonna stay. And that's Mordecai uh, living as a, as a Jew in the Persian empire. One of the things, just another side note about Mordecai, at the end of chapter two, just to showcase how honorable, how righteous uh, this man is, he's outside the king's gate and he hears two different servants, royal uh, servants, uh, plotting against King Xerxes and they wanna kill him. And, and Mordecai, uh, decides to alert the king. So he sends a message, he alerts the king, and he saves the king's life because the plot that those servants had actually turned out to be true, and he's not rewarded for it. So he's the kind of guy who does the right thing 
even when there's no, like, no benefit to him, right? He's like, oh, great. He doesn't even get like a pat on the back. Thank you. It's like, oh, I'm glad the king's okay. And they forget about the fact that Mordecai helped out. Another thing uh, that shows just how honorable Mordecai is, is he's actually adopted his much younger cousin, a young woman by the name of, anyone want to guess? Esther. Look at Esther chapter two, verse seven. He was bringing up Hadassah, that's her Hebrew name, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. So it's his, technically his cousin, but she's much younger. So he, he operates as her caregiver. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So this is a beautiful story of adoption in the Old Testament. Here's what you need to know about Esther, our third main character, our leading lady, okay? She's beautiful, she's brave, and she's obedient. She listens. It's actually one of her superpowers. She's, she's very good at doing the right thing when she's given wise counsel or wise instruction, right? From the very beginning, we know that she's beautiful. Can you see some foreshadowing here? What's happening in, in the palace with Xerxes? They're going to do a beauty contest. What's the very first thing we know about Esther? She's very beautiful. And quickly, she is taken uh, to participate in this beauty contest. And one of the last things that Mordecai tells her before she's taken is conceal your Jewish identity. So this kind of clues us in, even though they're living in the Persian empire, there's still some level of Jews being treated as a second-class citizen, possibly anti-Semitism. That'll come up later in the story as well. And she listens. She doesn't tell anyone that she's an Israelite. She doesn't tell anyone that. And then she quickly gains the favor of Haggai, who's the chief eunuch, who's in charge of all the beauty treatments. And it says that she listened to him perfectly. You know, anytime he gave instructions to all the ladies, she did exactly what uh, he said. So she's charming. And uh, it doesn't take long before, you know, she's doing all these beauty treatments. And it's like months. I don't even claim to understand. It's like oils and hair and exfoliation. I don't know, but she's doing all of it, right? She's doing it perfectly. And, uh, you know, it's that moment where, okay, after months and months and months of beauty treatments, Xerxes finally has like the lineup of ladies that are coming in. Has anyone seen The Emperor's New Groove, Disney movie? Anyone? Okay, there's this scene. It's kind of a bad scene, but it, you know, it's like, hey, you know, King, it's time for your, your, you know, pick your new bride. And he's like, yikes, yikes, yikes. And you have a nice personality, right? And it's kind of like, okay. So it, I imagine it kind of like that, where Xerxes is like not interested, not, you know, he's, I don't know which way you swipe on the apps, but it's the, he's not swiping the right way. And, and finally, Esther comes in. And it's like the heavens open and the angels sing. And he's like, yes. And he chooses Esther. And overnight, she goes from being just another maiden, you know, possibly a concubine in the palace, to overnight, she becomes the queen of the Persian Empire. And yet, this is not a Disney movie, and it doesn't end happily ever after. See, we haven't even been introduced to the villain of the story yet. The villain of the story is a royal advisor, one of the highest ranking officials in the empire. His name is Haman. Here's what you need to know about Haman. He's arrogant, he's angry, and he's racist. He hates the Jews. Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites. 
Now, the Amalekites, you can read about them in Exodus chapter 17. This will give you a picture for how ancient this grudge is, this rivalry uh, between the Israelites and the Amalekites, is in Exodus 17, the Israelites have just been freed from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. So they're kind of defenseless, right? They don't have a national guard. They don't have an army. They don't have anything like that. They're on their way to the promised land. And the Amalekites, they see this opportunity to attack them and steal all their stuff and kill them, right? So the very first people to attack the Israelites after they were freed from slavery are the Amalekites, right? So this is just this ancient grudge. And Haman is a representation. He's an embodiment of the Amalekite grudge towards uh, the Israelites. Now, wherever Haman went, he loved, here's his arrogance coming in, he loved to be honored. And he, he demanded that people bow down to him. Now, Persian culture is an honor-shame culture, so this kind of behavior is not you know, uncommon you know, uh, for that culture. And yet Haman, he really loved it. It meant a lot. You know, it's like some people, it's like, yes, thank you for the token, you know, like, you know, bow. And Haman is like, yes, bow to me. You know, like, he, he's kind of the puppet master. If Xerxes is the king, he's the powerful one. Haman's kind of like the puppet master. And everyone, wherever he went, they bowed down to him, everyone except Mordecai. And people started to notice. Like every time that Haman walks through the city, everyone's bowing down except Mordecai. And, you know, we're not told in the text that this is for religious reasons. It certainly could be, right? You know, if Mordecai feels like it, you know, it betrays his conscience, you know, I'm not going to bow to a man, I only bow before God, that certainly could be the case. It also could very likely be that Mordecai knows he's a descendant of the Amalekites, and he's like, I'm not bowing to that guy. Those guys are the worst, right? So, so we're not sure exactly uh, Mordecai's motivation, whatever it is, he refuses to bow. Well, this is how Haman responds. This is Esther chapter three, verse five. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, once he found out that he's Jewish, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So this is extreme evil. Do you see this? Okay, minor social infraction, right? Oh, you didn't bow like, all, it's not even like a law that Mordecai was breaking. And this infuriates Haman so much, he's like, you know what? I wanna find out what ethnicity that guy is. And I'm gonna have all of his people killed. That's evil, okay? So Haman is very evil, and so what he does is he goes before the king, and he, you know, he convinces him to create a new decree. So Haman loves these, you know, these royal advisors. They love decrees, and they, they're, they're, he creates this decree to destroy the Jews, and he rolls what's called a purr. It's the Babylonian word. It's like rolling a dice or casting lots, right? What is that called? It's, a, it's called a, a purr. Remember that. Lot, these are details. They're going to come up later in the story. Uh, he rolls up her to pick the exact date that the Jews would be destroyed. And it lands on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. And then there goes all throughout the empire this decree. Now, it's, it's, it's a long ways away. So there's a little bit of a waiting period before the Jews will be destroyed all throughout 
the empire, but wherever that news reaches, the Jewish community tears their clothes, they're weeping, they're mourning, they're fasting. Mordecai himself, he's weeping, he's mourning, he's fasting. Now, this takes this, this is, and this is, uh, this is the conflict of the story, okay? The conflict is not Xerxes needs a queen. The conflict is the Jews will all be destroyed. It goes from this kind of localized story in Susa to now, this is a major disruption for God's plans, is it not? I mean, if every single Jew is killed and there's still meant to be a Messiah who would come through the line of Judah, right? There's only a small remnant of people who've descended from the line of Judah left living in Jerusalem. This is a disruption. And so everyone is weeping, they're fasting, they're mourning, except for Esther. She is blissfully ignorant. She's in the palace, and she's really quite unaware that any of this is even happening. All she hears is, did you hear that your, uh, your caretaker, your, you know, Mordecai, did you hear that he's like fasting and mourning? And she hears about that and she tries to like send him new clothes. Like, no, stop, like, I don't want you to be sad. Do you know someone that does that, by the way? Like you're mourning and they just try to like, here's some ice cream, just cheer up already, right? That's kind of her, like, just don't be so sad about this. She doesn't really understand the gravity of the situation. She's insulated from it in the palace. And so there's this exchange, Mordecai who's outside the palace and Esther who's in the palace, uh, where they're sending these servants back and forth. In Esther chapter four, they're sending these servants back and forth and Mordecai sends word to Esther and tries to explain the situation to her, tries to get her to do something and, and she's thinking, didn't you hear about what happened to Vashti? All she refused to do was show up to a dinner party you think that if I try to reverse an irreversible, an irrevocable royal decree that something worse might happen to me? And so she's worried for her own life. But, but in Esther chapter four, verse 13, Mordecai sends these words to her. And these are such wisdom found in these words. Esther chapter four, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. These words from Mordecai, there's beautiful wisdom found in them. The first thing that Mordecai says, I hope you don't hear this as a threat. Mordecai isn't like, they're coming for you too, right? But what he said, it's, it's a warning. He says, I, this is exactly why I told you to conceal your Jewish heritage. But this is that moment where it's gonna, it's gonna, they're gonna find out at some point. And I'm, he's genuinely, as her adopted father, I'm worried for your life. Right? I'm worried for your life. And then he says this line, this is beautiful faith. Now, again, the name God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. He says, who knows? You know, if, if, if you don't help, salvation will come from another place. I wonder what other place he's thinking of, right? He's talking, God, he, he knows. He, then that's confidence. Whether you fulfill what he believes is your God-ordained destiny, Maybe this is why you're so beautiful. 
Maybe this is why you, you are the new queen of Persia, right? God is, per- like in Mordecai's eyes, it's crystal clear. God has perfectly positioned you to step in. And he says that beautiful line, for such a time as this. Who knows, he says, maybe God has you right where he wants you. And Esther, although she's still very much aware of the danger to her own life, Mordecai's words change her mind. Esther chapter four, verse 16. She says this, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. She knows she's in danger. And then she says this line, and if I perish, I perish. You know, that's where we get that line. If I die, I die. It's from Esther. And uh, it's this moment where she calls for a fast. Now, this is a serious fast. It's an absolute fast. No food, no drink, three days, day and night. That's a long time to fast. And uh, the, the God's people have already been fasting, by the way. They've been fasting as a way of mourning. But now she kind of redirects. She says, let's fast as a way of interceding for me, that God will give me favor when I go before the king. Uh, The season of Lent is just around the corner. The season of Lent is a 40-day period leading up to Easter, and it's just a period of fasting. I would encourage you to consider, especially if you've never fasted before, try fasting once a week. And we as a church, like imagine the power if five, 600 of us were all fasting and interceding for our lost friends, family members, and neighbors. Do you think that there would be more power this Easter if we were just doing that, if we were mobilized? And I wanna encourage you to join me uh, in fasting this Lent and praying that God would move powerfully in Easter. But that's what Esther asks about. She says, we're gonna do a fast. And then she gets to the end and she says, if I die, I died. Now I'm gonna summarize the rest of the story of Esther, okay? I would encourage you, it's a beautifully told historical narrative. Read Esther this week. Uh, What Esther's plan is, is after the three days, she throws a party because King Xerxes likes to party. She knows him, right? She's like, what am I gonna do? What's gonna convince him? He loves parties, I'm gonna throw a party. She throws this party, she invites the king, she invites Haman as well, and we think this is like the moment, right? You know, tensions are high, is this the climax of the story? And she doesn't have the nerve. We're not sure if she's like, the timing's not right, or if she maybe gets cold feet, but she throws this party, and King Xerxes is so impressed by her hospitality, he, he, he asks her, see, he says, ask me for anything up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And you're like, this is the moment where you're like, just say it. You know, you ever have that? You're watching a movie, just do it, right? Just say it. And she's like, all right, here's what I want from you. Another party tomorrow night. And Xerxes is like, this is why I picked you. You get me, right? (laughs) And she's like, okay, so she's gonna do another party. And then Haman, in the meantime, what he does is he's, he just hates Mordecai so much. He's building a special gallows for him. To hang, he's like, you know, the 13th day, the 12th month, it's coming up, right? And so he builds his special gallows for Mordecai. And that very night, here's the, there's so much irony in the story. That very night, the king can't sleep. And so he's like, what do I do when I can't sleep? And he invites one of his servants to read to him the, from the royal archives. He's like, my life is so boring. Just read it back to me. 
and I'll, it'll put me to sleep. And the, the servant reads to him one of the events that happened you know, a, a long time ago, and that was the event where Mordecai saved the king's life. And the king is like, wow, that was, that was cool that that guy did that for me. Did we ever send him a thank you card, fruit basket, anything? And the servant's like, no, you literally ignored him because you're a very bad king. No, he didn't say that, but he's like, <laughs> okay, you didn't do anything. And then the, here's the irony. The king is like, okay, we'll bring uh, Haman in here. And he's like, Haman, what do you think should be done for someone who the king is pleased with? And Haman thinks it too. He thinks it's him, obviously, because he's arrogant. And he's like, well, you should get the king's royal robes and his royal pony and parade him throughout the town. And everyone's gonna be like, you're the best guy ever. And so the king Xerxes is like, do it, except for it's not for you, it's for Mordecai. And Haman's like, no, right? And so that next day, so this is crazy irony, right? So that next day, Haman is like leading this parade for his mortal enemy, Mordecai, and he just hates him so much. And he goes home and he tells his wife how much he hates him. And she's like, I know work is hard, honey. And he's like, you don't get it. And while he's speaking to his wife, there's like humor and irony in this story, okay? Some of you read the Bible, you're like, it's boring. He's like, no, this is amazing. And he's there, he's telling his wife, while he's complaining to his wife about how much he hates Mordecai, the servant comes and gets him. He's like, time for party number two. And he's like, oh, I gotta go to this party now. So he goes to the party. And Esther does the same thing as the day before where it's beautiful, she gets all of the king's favorite snackies, you know, and like decorated, she's just like, great. And the king says, you've done it again. Ask me for anything, up to half my kingdom. And this is the moment where Esther's brave, okay? You see it, you're just like, just say it, just tell him, okay? And this is what true bravery is, by the way, is not someone who's just has no fear. Have you seen those rock climbers who climb mountains with no ropes? They've actually done brain scans on those guys. There's something wrong with their heads. <laughs> there actually is. Like, I'm not just like trying to slam them, but it's like, they're like, yeah, you're missing kind of like a important part of your brain. Anyways, that's not, I mean, yeah, that's fearless, but that's not necessarily bravery. Bravery is knowing the danger and actually deciding it's worth it to go through with it anyways even when you're scared to death. And Esther, like, I think that's what, why she didn't ask him the first banquet, because she just truly was just so afraid for her life. But here at the second banquet, she has this opportunity, and you're reading the story, you're like, just say it. And, and, and her face gets low, her countenance falls, and she says, there's, there's been a plot to destroy my people. Every, every single person you know, in my family, my friends, my community, they will be destroyed. And, uh, and it's just been grieving me. And this is a moment where the king is like, I had no idea. And she, he literally signed the document, by the way. But he has no idea. And she says, who would do this? Who could do such a thing? And Esther utters the line, a foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. And all eyes turn to Haman. And he's like, ah! <laughs> and the rest of the story goes like this. The gallows that Haman had custom built to hang Mordecai, Haman is hanged on those gallows. 
Mordecai is promoted and given Haman's job. The new decree is written that the Jews will now be protected on the 13th day of the 12th month. So he can't undo the decree because it's just kind of a silly rule in the Persian Empire, right? You can't reverse the decree, but he actually issues a new decree that the Jews will be, their defenses will be bolstered and they're saved that day. And to this day, there is now a Jewish holiday, an annual holiday called the Feast of Purim, which celebrates the day that the, the Pur rolled, and that, that was a day of destruction God used as a day of salvation for his people. Isn't that an amazing story? Isn't that amazing? And like I said, the name of God is not mentioned one time throughout the story. Can you see God's fingerprints? It's all over it. It's all over the story. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you three questions that you can ask, okay? Let's bring this back to, to our world. Three questions that you can ask to identify your calling. Where is God sending you? What does God want you to do? Who knows, maybe you are exactly where he wants you. The question number one is this, what do you care about? Your heart has to be in it. If you're gonna do something for God, we, God doesn't, isn't looking for us to do things for him reluctantly. Our heart has to be in it. What do you care about? Esther was unwilling to help until she cared about the safety of her people to the same degree as Mordecai. Do you see that? And this is actually this moment where I've said this before, but God's calling is not necessarily about you know, hyper-individualized like we think about it, but the key to finding God's plans for me is actually understanding God's plans for us. God will help you identify your purpose, your calling in the context of his covenant people. If you're trying to do this alone, it's not going to work. You're gonna end up like Esther, being maybe one inch away from what God wants you to do, but being totally unaware of it. We need a, a person like Mordecai. You need a Mordecai in your life who can actually you know, kind of nudge you a little bit and say, why don't you care about this? There's this injustice happening right under your nose. And, and so we have to care about it. So what do you care about? And that's both in a positive and in a negative sense. In a positive sense, what are you passionate about, right? What, do you, what makes you excited for me? I'll just share for me. Uh, I'm passionate about truth. I'm passionate about truth. I call it the light bulb moment for me. So when I, it's why I'm a preacher. It's one of my favorite things is when I can see it, I can see it in your eyes, right? When someone goes from like super confused, that doesn't make any sense. So there's this like, ah, he's like, I get it now, right? The light bulb moment. And I, I, that's just always excited me. I've always enjoyed being able to help someone connect the dots and, and for the light bulbs, for things to make sense. But then it's also in a negative sense. What do you care about? In, in a negative sense is what's that righteous anger? What, instead of what do you care about, like what are you concerned about? That everyone else, does, they don't even, it doesn't even seem to bother them, right? But every time you think about human trafficking, Every time you think about social injustice, every time you think about poverty, every time you think about illiteracy, every time, whatever that problem is, like other people seem to kind of like, oh, well, like too bad for them, but for you, it's just like really bothers you. For me, it's kind of the opposite of truth. It's when I, when I see people believing lies, living lies, misunderstandings, or especially false gospels. Like that to me, it's just like, ugh, like kills me inside. 
I have to do something. I have to say something about this. That's question number one. Question number two is what do you have? What has God given to you? This is your skills, your abilities, your resources, your relationships. What does Esther have? Esther is pretty. And, and she may not have, and I don't know if she was so aware of this, right? But sometimes the things that we have, we actually take for granted because it's just, we've always had it, right? And it may even take someone else telling you, like, do you, like, do you realize how beautiful you are, Esther? And so Esther is beautiful, she's charming. She kind of, maybe she was taking that for granted, but she probably knew it when she won the, you know, the most beautiful girl in all the land contest, right? But you don't have to wait to win some sort of contest or be validated by what you have. You just have to simply recognize what you've been given. You may not recognize it's a gift because it's always just come naturally to you. For me, I never really thought about myself as a public speaker. And then you want to talk about contests. When I was in the elementary school, there was a speech contest. Anyone do a speech contest? I memorized Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss. I won the speech contest on that. By the way, that's just like a, a, a pro tip right there. It's only actually one paragraph long, but then you read it and it just adds one line. every. So I only had to memorize, memorize like 10 lines or whatever. Won the speech contest, hands down, elementary school. And, uh, and for me, I was just kind of like, Oh, that's great. It, di it didn't really dawn on me. Like looking back, I'm like, oh, even as like a 10 year old, I didn't really have a problem getting up in front of people and talking about green eggs and ham, right? Now, like it, that's what I do every single week. And it's just one of those kind of natural things. Look at your own life and maybe even ask people around you. What, what do you think? What do you see that I have? You know, what, what are those skills, abilities, resources that you have? And question number three is what have you been through? God has, used, God has been shaping you throughout your entire life, and God has actually been shaping you through every chapter, both good and bad. Esther was an orphan. Mordecai had been caring for her, right? You see Mordecai's compassion, by the way, for people who are in a, in a, in a helpless position. It's no accident that Mordecai is like the advocate of the story who mobilizes Esther to do something because he has a specific kind of heart for people. And, and so for Esther, what has she been through? She's been through this beauty contest, right? She's been into the palace. She knows the inner working. She knows King Xerxes better than anyone else. And so she's perfectly positioned by the time that her people are in need to make a difference. For me, I grew up, my dad was a pastor. Some of you uh, may not know that. I grew up as a pastor's kid, but I, I saw both the good and the bad parts of ministry. You know, like the sausage factory thing where you see the behind the scenes and you can't eat sausage or whatever, right? And it's just like, I, I've seen both, you know, the beautiful sides of church and ministry and I've seen the ugly sides. And I don't think it's an accident that I care so much about building a healthy church, a healthy culture, right? Not wanting to sacrifice family for the sake of ministry, all of those sorts of things. Those are things I have been through from a very young age. And you've been through things too. Even the dark parts of your story, God has been shaping you for maybe such a time as this. Here's the point. God made you on purpose for a purpose. 
God made you on purpose for a purpose. If you've ever had that thought, you know, maybe I don't have a purpose. Maybe I don't have a meaning. Maybe I'm, I'm just an accident. That is a lie from the enemy. God made you, everyone say it. God made you on purpose for a purpose. And, and God wants to use you. Here's Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Some translations say masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's what Paul is saying to the church in Ephesians chapter two. God is sending you on mission. He has something for you to do. He has got good works for you to do. You might be one inch away from your destiny but you've got to recognize that God made you on purpose for a purpose. I want to give you three ways that we can practice this. The first one is we've got to start helping others. This is, this is what it means. You've got to help others. Did God put Esther in the palace so that she could be saved herself? No. Mordecai explicitly says that's not true. He explicitly says, do you think that you won this, this contest and that you're the queen of Persia just so you could be saved from this decree and all the rest of us should perish? He says, no. God puts you in a position so that you could help others. That's why God gave you the resources he gave you, the skills that you have, the relationships. That's why God has brought you through this journey, this story of your life. And we've got to stop looking at our lives selfishly, but sacrificially and selflessly. I think of the story of the Good Samaritan, right? When Jesus is, is helping answer the question, what does it mean to love your neighbor well? Who is your neighbor? And in the story, there's the bad guys, the robbers, and they say, what's yours is mine, and they take. Obviously, we don't want to be like the robbers, but then there's the religious people in the story who they just don't help. They say, what's mine is mine. And I think of so many Christians in the church today. It's not that we're robbers. It's not that we're bad people. We're just not using our lives to step in and help when we're one inch away from the situation, the ordinary opportunity that God has given you. And then there's the Samaritan in the story. He doesn't say what's yours is mine. He doesn't say what's mine is mine. He says what's mine is yours. And he lives his life selflessly. And according to Jesus, that's love. And that's what Jesus commands of us. So that's the first thing to practice, helping others. The second thing is pay the cost. Do you realize there's always a cost associated with your calling? For Esther, the cost was obviously her, her life, her position, her safety, and she has to get to the point where she's willing to say, if I die, I die. And so for us, even if you have a heart to help others, this is often where it stops for most followers of Jesus. You get to the point where you see an opportunity, you're starting to walk by the Holy Spirit and listen to the Holy Spirit. You've got a heart, you've got compassion, and then you get to the point where you're like, ugh, I'm just so busy next week. Or there's a financial cost, ugh, you know, like things are kind of tight. Or there's a relational cost. Oh, I don't really like being around that person, but I feel like the, the spirit is leading me to share the gospel with that person. Really? You want me to lead that person to Christ, right? There's a cost. There's always a cost. Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. The reality is it may never be easy, but it's always going to be worth it. Sienna Scott, in an article about Esther, she says this, sometimes choosing the right thing may cost us greatly. 
Other times, like in the book of Esther, our integrity is vindicated and rewarded. No matter the outcome, choosing the right thing when it's the hard thing is always a good thing. The reality is, you may get to the point where there is risk, and yet your actions are rewarded and validated. And it's like, that went way better than I thought it would. You may, do, uh, you, you may get into other situations where you actually have to pay the cost. Don't allow those situations where it costs you greatly deter you from continuing to follow Jesus with everything. Because we look to Jesus Christ who paid the ultimate sacrifice in his death on the cross for us. I mean, think about that. Think about the most helpful thing anyone has ever done in history. It's allowing there to be the forgiveness of sins. And it's Jesus Christ paying that cost on the cross. Look a little bit later in Ephesians chapter two, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the cost of forgiveness. God doesn't wave a magic wand and sins are just uh, forgiven. There ha the penalty has to be paid. The punishment has to be made. And it is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his blood on the cross poured out for you and for me. His death, burial, and then his resurrection where three days later he rose in victory so that we can share in that victory so that we can be forgiven of our sins. We can be raised up into a new life with him. And I just wanna invite you, if you've never received the gospel by faith, today can be the day that you receive that gift of God's grace and you pray and you ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life. I wanna, I wanna invite you to respond through baptism. It's the way Jesus instructed us to respond, to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you wanna learn more about baptism, you can find out more at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. But you've gotta know, once you put your faith in Jesus, once you respond to the good news of the gospel, here's what's gonna happen. Here's what's gonna happen. That's really the starting line of this journey of following Jesus. This journey that will take place throughout the rest of your life where he's going to invite you, not just to an initial Decision of faith, he's gonna invite you to steps of faith every single day for the rest of your life. So here's the third thing for us to do, church, is to join God. To join God, to recognize you, you probably won't wake up. In fact, I hope you don't expect to wake up and you open you know, your front door and you see a bush that's on fire and you're like, man, this is crazy. Hey, little buddy, what, you know, it's like, it's probably not gonna happen. Stop waiting for some miraculous moment where you're gonna get 100% crystal clear clarity to begin following Jesus with everything. And just take the first murky, muddy, uncertain step. I think this is the way that God is leading me and calling me. It's, it's certainly not easy. I know it's for the sake of others. I know it's for the sake of God's kingdom. But would you pray that we have eyes to see what God is already doing? His name is never mentioned in Esther. And yet his fingerprints are written all over that story. And as you look at your life, both in the past, but also as you look at your life today, would you have eyes to join God in the mission to reach the lost? Let's stand and worship our God. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. 
Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.